0: Ladies and gentlemen, it is my uh, privilege to introduce uh, tonight's speaker. He is uh, Mohamed El Irian. We're talking on navigating global economic and financial change. Head for the nearest rock and hit it hard. Um, Mohamed uh, El Irian is uh, co CEO and co CIO of PIMCO, previously he was president and CEO of Harvard Management Company uh, one that uh, I think the only one that outperformed Yale my alma mater for a, for a regular number of years and a member of the faculty of Harvard Business School he has master and doctorate degrees from Oxford um, after completing his undergraduate studies at the Better University of Cambridge um, he is the author of a recent book as you know when markets collide, investment strategies for the world of global economic change, which is available for a ludic- ludicrously low price at the end of the meeting in the hallway up there, I am not taking a cut, uh, and uh, uh, so I recommend you do that. Um, uh, um, uh, Mr. Auerian will uh, do his presentation, and then uh, we will have a Q&A session. But we aim to be out of here by 8 p.m. today. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Um, Thank you, Willem. Let me start by saying it's a huge pleasure and honor um, to be here. My attempted love affair with LSE started back in 1975 when I was an A-level student, um, and I applied to the LSE for undergraduate studies, and then I got diverted. Um, But I remember spending a lot of time going through the prospectus and visiting and getting all excited. And then I tried it again three years later for my postgraduate, and I again got diverted. Um, So it's a pleasure to come back 30 years later. (laughs) And let me tell you that 30 years ago, the infrastructure didn't look anything like this at all. The timing of today's lecture is special. I met with my colleagues in our office here, and I told them that what's happening today in the financial markets is not only incredibly historic, but it's the sort of things that we're going to be telling our kids and grandkids about for a very big number, for a very long time. And the reason why is because market systems in general and financial systems in particular do not deal well when the crisis occurs at the center of the system. They manage well with crises at the periphery but the minute you shock the system at its center you lose all anchors. And don't fool yourself. Today we are looking at a crisis of the system, not a crisis within the system, a crisis of the system. That is why almost everybody has underestimated its consequence. That's why every time people think they understand it, it morphs into something else. And that is why, relative to what crisis managers know and are comfortable with, this crisis differs in three fundamental ways. First, it is truly global in nature. Second, it is truly indiscriminate in impact. And thirdly, it is truly consequential in outcomes. And what I'd like to do for the next 15 to 20 minutes is share with you some thoughts on the why, how, and what next. Why the crisis? How is it being managed or mismanaged? And what should we expect after that? And then take whatever questions you have on this topic. or why I didn't come to the LSE when I was given two choices to do so. Um, What I'd like to do is organize the discussion into into four main areas. The first is just give you a sense of how fluid the global system is and why the unthinkable has become thinkable. Why is it that words like unthinkable, unprecedented dominate the analysis of this crisis? I will then talk about what it means and I'm going to pick on two groups just to illustrate how Fundamental this crisis is and how it requires retooling, is I'm going to pick on investors and I'm going to pick on policymakers, and share with you how difficult it is for these groups to understand what's going on and therefore to react on a timely basis. And then I'm going to take you one step further and talk about the financial system and talk about the simple fact, not prediction, fact. That day in and day out, the financial system is being redefined by facts on the ground. And that these facts are not being implemented according to some master plan. No one has a master plan. They're being implemented because of ad hoc responses. So we are changing the financial landscape in a secular fashion, but not doing so in a way that's necessarily consistent over time. And finally, I'm going to talk about the two areas that anybody, in whatever sector you are, including if you're a student thinking of what job you're going to get, is how to position for the journey and how to position for the destination. Because we are embarked on a bumpy journey to a new destination. The capitalist system will not reset in a manner that we would expect based on historical trends. And that's why I I told you in the beginning we will be telling our kids and grandkids about this. Now I could spend the next 20 to 30 minutes showing you charts. And all these charts would explain to you why the notion of a cardiac arrest of the system having a heart attack became so widespread in September and October. They look like the medical chart of someone having a heart attack. But I'm not going to show you many charts. I'm going to just show you two. I'm going to show you two of the most basic relationships in a global financial system that, like oil in a car, people take for granted. When you get into your car in the morning and turn it on, you assume the oil works. You worry about what radio station you have on, but you don't worry about whether your oil is going to work or not. But if the oil doesn't start working, the implications are huge. So these are two charts. The first chart is probably the most important interest rate in the world, which is the effective federal fund rate. And look what happens around mid-September. It's literally as if someone's having a heart attack. The Federal Reserve was telling the market one thing, at the time that the rate is 2%, the market couldn't decide whether the rate was 0% or 7%. This is the most important rate at the heart of the system. And look at the way it was behaving. The second is the difference between the rate, for the banking system and the official rate looking forward. And here you see two heart attacks, a small one back in July of last year and then a major one in September of this year. Now as I mentioned, I could share with you hundreds of charts that will all show you why this notion of the system having a cardiac arrest and requiring shock treatment has become so popular because they all have the same tendency of that. But I'm gonna choose another way of illustrating a little bit what we're going through. Imagine what you would have thought of me if a year ago I had got up in front of you and said I'm gonna make the following prediction for the next 12 months. Just imagine what you would have thought of me. Prediction number one, the next systemic crisis is going to originate not only in the center of the system but in the most sophisticated financial systems that pride themselves on risk management. Prediction number two, we are going to pick up the newspaper and get pictures of bank runs, people standing in line to take their money out of banks. But it's not going to be Argentina, it's not going to be Russia. It's not going to be an Asian country. It's going to be in the two most sophisticated countries in the world, financially, the U.S. and the U.K. At that point, some of you would have said, well, this person obviously is a maverick. Okay, Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. So I would have said prediction number three, that what I call the Sunday night specials. Now, Sunday night specials are when policy announcements suddenly get made on weekends. Okay. Now, in developing countries, you're used to policy announcements being made in in weekends. But you don't expect the United States to have some Sunday night special. This year, we've had five Sunday night specials. So my third prediction would have been the Sunday night specials are going to be coming out of... You know, I have Sunday morning, because in California it tends to be in the morning, but... okay. (laughs) Then the fourth prediction, I would have told you, and guess what? The Federal Reserve is going to rescue the biggest insurance company in the world. And if that is not enough as a proposal, and if I had not completely lost you by that stage, I would have said, and we are going to witness the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States going to Congress and asking for a bazooka in his pocket, asking for unlimited unlimited appropriation to deal with the crisis. That list could go on. I could talk to the disappearance of institutions like Lehman and Bear Stearns that had been around for a long time. I could talk about the nationalization by the Bush administration of parts of the banking system. Think of what, how you would have reacted a year ago had I said all this. Most of you would have thought would would probably react like, "I don't know what he's been drinking, but I hope I can get some." (laughs) But it gives you the bumper sticker for what we're going through, which which is that the unthinkable is thinkable. All these were unthinkable 12 months ago. All these are facts today. This is a crisis of the system. So what happens when you get a crisis of the system? Why is it different from a crisis within the system? First, as I mentioned earlier, you create new facts on the ground. You permanently alter relationships. You alter the relationship on the institutional sides. Institutions merge, others disappear. You alter the balance between the private and public sector. And remember, you're not doing this according to any master plan. There is no master plan. You're doing it as a result of ad hoc reactions, which means that the probability and severity of market accidents and policy mistakes increase, because there are no longer any anchors in the system. In turn, that exposes the system to unpredictable and volatile feedback loops. And that is why this crisis morphs, and today it's morphing again from a financial crisis to a truly global economic crisis. In this world, and Willem can speak to that much better than I can, there is no perfect policy response. Every policy response is in the world of second, third, or fourth best. Every policy response involves collateral damage. Involves unintended consequences. And because of that, the system doesn't reset. It's not like your phone or your Blackberry that you can press reset and it comes back to something that you recognize. It doesn't reset. It goes towards eventually a new destination and gets there in a very bumpy fashion. How did we get here? coming from California where it's really warm compared to here and where it's really dry we think in terms of analogies on the beach so imagine you're building a sand hill and dropping sand and for a while it builds up and then a single grain of sand can be the straw that breaks the camel's back a single grain can completely change the dynamics of what you've been building for a number of years now the global system was operating with a number of structural weaknesses we ended up in what my colleagues at PIMCO labeled the stable disequilibrium there were fundamental elements of disequilibrium in the system but they seemed stable for now. They were so stable that they encouraged talk about the great moderation, Goldilocks. It's neither too hot or too cold. Meanwhile, the imbalances grew. The biggest imbalance was, of course, the payments imbalance, where you had a situation where the poor countries were lending to the rich. Again, none of your economic textbook would predict that outcome. And the biggest borrower was of course the United States running imbalances of six, seven percent of GDP. You had imbalances in the private sector where short term profit maximization completely dominated. And critically, you had a failure of risk management at every level of the global economy. It started by the homeowner in the United States buying homes that they could not fundamentally afford. It started. It continued to firms undertaking activities that they knew they could not model properly. In the book, I quote this very famous quote that appeared on the front page of the newspaper of the Financial Times in July of last year. Chuck Prince, the then CEO of Citigroup, said, when the music stops, it will be messy. But as long as the music is playing, we are dancing. The music stopped a few days after he made that quote. Okay, and people couldn't get off the dance floor. There was a failure at the level of firms in terms of risk management. There was a failure at the level of rating agencies. There were a failure at the level of regulatory bodies at the national level and the biggest failure of it all was at the multilateral level. So combine long-standing economic imbalances, failures of risk management at every level, shock it with a financial innovation called structured finance that allows you to reduce barriers to entry to virtually any market, an exotic mortgage which allowed lots of people to own homes they, they could not afford, is nothing more than structured finance. That is the unstable hill you have. And then add a little grain called the subprime debt crisis. And then you watch the whole thing come down. And as it comes down, it brings other things down. Why? Because you suddenly have to throw into reverse Three and perhaps four balance sheets. If that weren't bad enough, shock the system again on September 15th by not the failure of a major institution called Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers should have failed, but how Lehman Brothers failed. And in particular, failing in a manner that destroys trust in the payments and settlement system, which is the most sacred part of a market economy. Those of you who, who ever visited the States um, and visited California in particular will no doubt have seen the drive through the McDonald's drive through And because we are a car culture in California, um, our, our drive through have two windows. So you order and then you drive up to the first window, you pay and you drive up to the second window and you collect your food. It's a very efficient process. They can get you out of there in about 45 seconds. Okay? So the first window is simply involved in the payments transaction. The second one delivers the food. Let me tell you what happened on September 15th. On September 15th, the following thing happened. The people who ordered the food that were really hungry, really hungry, and drove up to the payments were told, hand me the $5 and you're going to get your Big Mac 10 yards down. And the person said, hell no. I want my Big Mac now. I don't trust the system. I don't trust the system. But, but it's never failed. Hell has failed. It's failed okay, at, at, at Wendy's down the road. Okay? Uh, give me my hamburger now. I can't give you my hamburger now. The system is not built for instantaneous delivery. So the hungry person says, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm not paying. I'm going to go hungry. The second window has all the bread, has all the meat is ready to make that hamburger, but is not going to give the hamburger unless they get the money at the same time. The system freezes. Even though the person is hungry, they don't get the hamburger, and even though the kitchen has the ingredients, it doesn't deliver the hamburger. Put in another way, notional demand and notional supply can never become effective demand and effective supply. It freezes the system. So what we're seeing now is an accelerated deleveraging of three and possibly four balance sheets. And that is why what was a financial crisis, what was a Wall Street crisis, became a Main Street crisis. Look at the first balance sheet. Housing in the U.S. I think words, you know, fail Okay, when you see a chart like that. It is falling off a cliff. Okay. Now, That started to turn in 2006. And it has been accelerating (coughs) ever since. Housing is a critical element because it links the stocks and the flows in economies. It links into these very complicated feedback loops that work really well on the way up and are vicious on the way down. The average person for a very long time in the United States, used their housing as the cash machine, as the ATM. House prices would go up, you refinance your mortgage, you take out money, you spend it. It doesn't matter because house prices keep on going up. So you take out even more money. Okay, so suddenly the stock of housing is linked to consumption through the equity withdrawal. Housing related securities that were now being produced by these factories of structured finance were in so many different balance sheets. It was great on the way up, but on the way down, the dynamics changed. Which brought the financial sector into play. This is a graph of credit extension by banks. And you see what happened in the years where this stable disequilibrium took place, where the great moderation took place. And now, not only are we having to reverse this expansion, but the trend line is going to come down because the financial system is being de-risked. It is unacceptable for a society to privatize massive gains and socialize massive losses. Those of you who who play Monopoly, okay, okay, this is what's happening to the banking system. The banking system used to be the dog green and dog blue park lane where you can build lots of houses and hotels and make lots of money out of it. Now it's be, the, the banking system is being turned into a utility. You can't build houses. You can't build hotels. You can still make money, but nothing compared to the past. So we are going to see a major de-risking of the banking system, which means a major (coughs) consolidation of the banking system. No wonder bank equities, shares, have been hit so hard because the return on equity on a utility is not that high. And not only that, but when banks run into trouble, they raise capital, which is they dilute. So this is the second balance sheet that turned. The first balance sheet that turned was housing. The second balance sheet that turned in 2007 is the financial sector. And it's accelerating downwards. Which meant, how does the financial sector react if it cannot raise capital cheaply? It cuts loans. It sells assets. It sells businesses. It tries to delever, forcing the deleverage process to accelerate. This is what's happened to credit conditions on the consumer. And it's therefore not surprising that the wealth of the consumer gets hit, the credit of the consumer gets hit, and you wake up to a number this morning that shows you that Starbucks' profit is down
2: 97%.
1: And car sales have fallen off a cliff because the consumer cannot resist the pressure, the combined pressure of income losses due to unemployment going up, a credit shock because they can't get credit, the inability to use the house as the ATM, and wealth being destroyed, especially if you have been saving for retirement and suddenly it's worth 20 to 40% less. These are the three balance sheets that are now contracting and feeding onto each other. Housing, financials, and consumer. There's a fourth balance sheet out there that had its problems much earlier on, and that is emerging economies. <coughs> they had their crises from 97 to 98, all the way to 2002. And therefore, they entered this crisis with a lot of self insurance. And what we're seeing is we're seeing that self insurance being eaten up. Day in and day out. So there's a real question mark as to whether that, this fourth area, which has been an area of strength for the global economy, also succumbs to this crisis. Why should we care? Okay. We care because it's changing the rules for investors, for policymakers, for any business, for consumers, for the less well off of society. Every single segment has to navigate what has become a very bumpy journey. Every single segment has to ask the question, am I prepared to deal with the new destination? This is a fundamental secular shift that's occurring through a very bumpy process. If you're an investor, the things that you took for granted are no longer delivering what they used to your asset allocation, your traditional approach to asset allocation is fatigued. That's a nice way of saying that correlations are changing very radically and that you can no longer depend on history to guide your asset allocation process. Once you make an asset allocation decision, you have to implement it. You have to find the vehicle to implement it. And these changes... Are wiping out investment vehicles. So you may make the right investment decision and happen to implement it by someone who does not survive the change. And of course, we are going to see a major consolidation of the hedge fund industry in this world. And finally, it has reminded people of something that was known but not seriously taken, which is that diversification is a necessary condition for risk management but not sufficient. You have to identify your left tails. You have to identify the mistakes that you cannot afford to make. And you have to actively try to clip them, clip the left tail through active risk management. If you think that's difficult, have pity on the policymaker. I would hate to be a policymaker right now. There's no upside. No upside at all. The good news is that the policymakers have realized that this is serious. Just like September 15th was the date in which the crisis truly morphed into something much more global in nature, October 10th is the time when the policy paradigm shifted. As people gathered in Washington, D.C., and compared notes, it became very clear that something major was going on. And helped by the fact that the UK had moved a couple of days earlier in in taking quite a bold approach, we saw a complete change in the policy paradigm. The implementation of measures went from being sequential to simultaneous. The talk went from specific steps packages and international coordination went from non-existent to correlated actions to coordinated actions so the good news is the policymakers are in what Gordon Brown called the wit phase whatever it takes and what Colin Powell would you would say using overwhelming force that is the good news the policymakers ha- the mindset has changed. The bad news is there is no perfect policy response. So willingness doesn't mean ability. The data flow is imperfect. When you, cha- when you shock the center of the system, there are no longer any relevant indicators that have good information content like they used to do in the past. And just remember the chart I showed you about such basic relationships between LIBOR and the Fed funds rate. Thirdly, even if you know what you're doing, your instruments are blunt. Most instruments deal with problems around within the system, not a problem of the system. So you're going to create collateral damage, which means you become more hesitant. And then there are political checks and balances. The timetable between the political side and the market side is completely different. Markets want action yesterday. And if you can't do it yesterday, do it today. The political system says, wait a minute, I'm going to spend taxpayers' money on this. I need a process before doing this. And finally, there is a huge temptation to do what's really easy, which is enter into a blame game. And it's hard to enter into a blame game because remember I mentioned that the failures occurred at every level of the system. The final point I'd like like to leave with you is that this is not just a secular story. Remember the context in which it was happening. It was happening at a time of a rebalancing or a handoff of these three factors. We are witnessing a rebalancing of growth engines away from the United States whose debt-fueled growth phase was exhausted towards emerging economies when increasing number of people were entering the middle class and where domestic consumption was starting to become a more important driver. This has occurred in the context of a significant transfer of wealth. As the United States ran ran, ran a very large current deficit, emerging economies accumulated significant international reserve. They went from being net debtors to net creditors. And finally, as I mentioned before, it occurred in the context of a major innovation which reduced barriers to entries to markets. So for us, as investment managers, for people who are studying, this is really exciting because you get it all. You get the major shocks and you get the secular redefinition going on at the same time. And somehow, the system is going to have to clear and it goes back to what I said earlier, it doesn't clear at a characterization that looks anything like where we came from. It will not reset to where we came from. Which leads me to the final point, which is that anybody that goes through this has to retool. It's not just about navigating the crisis, it's about retooling for the destination. And retooling is not easy. It forces people out of their comfort zone. Retooling is not automatic. Right? The tendency is to continue doing what you've been doing before. And retooling involves a number of risks. Let me suggest that the best way of thinking about a re- retooling is to make a difference between the journey and the destination. What does the financial system have to retool for? The financial system has to retool for the reality that there are going to be fewer institutions out there. Governments are starting to make very clear that there's a certain set of institutions that are systemically important. And they're wrapping their arms around them. They're providing them capital. They're providing them guarantees which means there's a whole set of other institutions that are not systemically important. And the outlook for them is either merge or get into the club. So we're going to see a complete redefinition of the financial system. And that redefinition, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be shifting towards a utilities model, a de-risk financial system that is slimmer And the trade-off for the next couple of years at least is give me stability, and I'm willing to forego innovation. Because if I don't stabilize the system, there won't be much of a system left on that. So let let me conclude with, with these five simple points. We are in the midst of both a severe cyclical dislocation and a fundamental secular realignment. It's the clashes of markets. It's the clashes of the worlds of yesterday and the world of tomorrow. By definition, this is an inherently volatile and unpredictable process. What we know for sure is it requires a multifaceted reaction and it requires retooling. The difficulty is that the retooling does not come without risk. It involves significant risk. But the risk of doing nothing, the risk of inaction is much, much higher. Thank you very much and I'm happy to take any questions.
0: Yeah, so uh I don't mean the name of the person who okay. is Um who's lost? Where's the, where's the there? You want to save up the questions answer one. I'm completely in your hands. you can pass. Okay.
2: Uh, I'll repeat that. I was just wondering, you were talking about the balance sheets that have failed and uh, you mentioned the emerging markets as part of that and I was wondering if you could just elaborate more on that and also explain within the emerging market region where you see the survivors and who you see falling by the wayside.
1: Okay. um, You know, there's one advantage To having a crisis earlier, which is that you build up a significant amount of self-insurance. So because the emerging world had its crisis starting in 97 all the way to 2002, and because the emerging markets lost faith in the multilateral system, the emerging economies as a whole build a tremendous amount of self-insurance. That self insurance took the following form a very high level of international reserves, a much reduced level of indebtedness, and shifting that indebtedness towards issuance in domestic currencies rather than external currencies, significant macro prudence. So the bloc as a whole was running a fiscal surplus and very responsive monetary policies. So entering into the crisis, the emerging markets had a significant level of self-insurance. And for the first year of the crisis, the emerging markets were doing great. They continued to grow. The stock markets were doing okay. And that led to all this talk about decoupling. And it led to the strong variant of the decoupling hypothesis. The strong variant of the decoupling hypothesis says emerging economies can continue to grow even though industrial countries are coming down. The weak variant says that the decline in emerging market growth will not be as big as the decline in industrial market growth, which historically is actually quite a strong statement. But at that point, the view was that the emerging economies can decouple. Then two things happened. Six months ago, if you remember, oil was at 147, or 157, I can't remember now. 47. 147. Okay, commodity prices were very high, and the only thing you could talk you could hear in emerging economies was about inflation. So emerging markets started tapping on the brakes, just like when the industrial countries were slowing down. So their domestic policies became pro cyclical. And the second thing that happened is what I mentioned, which is that the September 15th disruption caused what, what, what Guillermo Calvo calls a sudden stop in liquidity. And any emerging economy that was relying on cross-border wholesale banking suddenly woke up to find itself in the experience of the, of the drive through window. So the situation today is if you look at the group as a whole... There is still quite a bit of self-insurance, but it is significantly lower than what it was. But what's really interesting is the distribution of the self-insurance. So you have countries like China that have massive self-insurance. And that's why they were able to announce almost a $600 billion stimulus package on Sunday night. You have other countries in Central and Eastern Europe and part of Asia that have no self-insurance, and they're the ones who are bringing the IMF back into business on that. So, the story of emerging economies is going from something where you could talk about the block to something that has become very country specific. And dispersion among emerging economies is, is, is the story going forward.
0: Okay, this one.
3: Classical economists in the early nineteenth century were haunted by the idea of a stationary state. John Stuart Mill has a very interesting chapter on this. Do you think the capitalist uh, economy could be on the verge of a very major shift towards what John Stuart Mill described as a stationary state? That the notion of unlimited growth, etc., etc., you know, is coming to an
2: end. That we're coming into the office.
1: Yeah. Let me rephrase your question in terms of is it possible that we get stuck in a low-level equilibrium for a very long time? And that lower-level equilibrium would be characterized by stagflation, an inability to grow, and yet pressure on the inflation front. It's a possibility, but it's not the probability. Okay? The, the probability is that you're going to have a prolonged U that the industrial world, and the US in particular, will grow below capacity for a while. And below capacity is not only that the economy is going at a speed limit that's below the maximum speed limit, but the maximum speed limit itself is being pulled down. Why doesn't that result in a, a low level equilibrium for the world as a whole? Because the systemically more important countries have many more degrees of freedom domestically than the industrial countries have. So the, the baseline is one of handoff where we are at a lower level of global growth, but we're not at a stationary state, as you put it. And a healing process takes place in industrial countries that takes years. What is the risk? The risk is a policy mistake. If you get a policy mistake either in China or the United States, then the probability of a stationary um, state looks like, but it's not going to look, we were talking about this before, it's going to look like an I initially, right? Because things will will fall very, very quickly, and then you get your stationary state. But you don't get there, I don't think, and William, you can speak to that, with much more authority. I don't think you get there without a major policy mistake either in China or in the United States.
0: The most likely one would be a trade war, I think. That would certainly do. Right. Yeah. Uh, The gentleman in the blue jacket and then he goes to the right
2: and to the back. Yes. I know you're there. uh, Thank you. I was going to ask, in a sense, a similar question. Uh, Could could you amplify your view of, of I understand that the future is inherently unpredictable. Now, but could you spell out? Could you amplify more the sort of scenarios that you considered? Uh, we discussed in just a moment ago. which um, you a terrible, uh, in the long-term global, long-term, very United States-China. Could you say more about how you think this will play out?
1: Sure let me start with the reality of telling you that we revisit this on a high frequency basis. So we have a secular view, but we also recognize the possibilities of multiple equilibrium. That the cyclical becomes a defining element of the secular, rather than the secular imposing itself on the cyclical. And that is a reason why, for example, our investment committee, which used to be two, two, two days a week for two hours, has become daily for three hours. Because facts are are being created on the ground very quickly, so what I'm going to give you is with the famous Keynes um, qualification, which is when the facts change, I will change my mind okay um the, if you If you told me today as an investment manager, you are going you have to put a portfolio in place and you cannot touch it for five years, okay. So that's the extreme of bet on the secular, and absorb the secular. I would tell you that I would bet on the restoration of global growth in the 3 to 4% range. I would bet on a gradual healing process in the industrial countries starting with the United States. I would hope that we don't fall victim to protectionism, which in my mind would be a major policy mistake and I would bet on the emergence of domestic demand in emerging economies that have both the will and the wallet. And that together would lead me to believe that at some point reflation will take place, but I would worry about us having to clean up the impact of the massive liquidity injections that are going on, the massive liquidity support, and these ad hoc changes um, on that. So if you ask me to bet on that, I will do that. I would also buy a certain amount of tail insurance that would protect against um, a policy mistake. And then I would go and, and take a holiday for five years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, you have got an interesting
3: chart on one of your slides, showing US commercial bank credit relative to the GDP. And you portrayed it as a rising trend. Now, surely that's not sustainable, because you can't have bank credit rising to about 200% of GDP. Um, so I was hoping to get you to comment on what do you think the sustainable level of debt is not just for the banking system, um, but for the economy as a whole. Um, and following on from that, um, since you seem to be fond of analogies, um, I'll put this one to you. Investment banks and the rest of the shadow banking system are the modern-day equivalent of pirate ships. Um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, pirate ships hovered over the sea lanes of the world and preyed on ships bringing in goods from emerging markets, basically. Um, and the latter-day equivalent of pirate ships are investment banks in the shadow banking system. And the modern day equivalent of trade flows are capital flows. Um, the, the analogy goes a bit further as well because the British government initially encouraged pirate ships as long as they preyed on Spanish and Portuguese ships. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then eventually they realized that the rule of law and international stability is a global public good and they crack down on piracy. Now you've touched on this slightly when you talk about the utility model. Uh, but my question after all of this is, How far do you think policymakers should go towards reducing the banking industry to purely a utility model? Thanks.
1: Okay. um, That is a great question and a great analogy. Um, Let me start with a point that you touched. Very, very, very insightful. Which is in your analogy, you said, this all was tolerated until it touched upon a public good. And at that point, you implied that the tolerance disappeared. And that is a really good way of saying what's going on today. Today's crisis has touched on a public good. A public good that no one really owns, but the world assumed the United States owned which is global financial stability. Why the United States? Because it's the provider of the reserve currency, and because it's the provider of the deepest, most predictable, most liquid financial markets. So your analogy is actually quite a good one in the sense that the game kept on happening until the public good was threatened, and at that point, you come in and you do risk the system, and that is what's happening right now in terms of turning, in our view, the financial industry and it's particularly the, the banks, into more of a utilities model. On that, because you've got to protect these public goods. On that, whether your analogy goes as far as as involving. Um, pirate ships it's an interesting debate the shadow banking system and I'm going to define it more broadly to include the proliferation of hedge funds were enabled by financial innovation they were enabled by the creation of endogenous liquidity in the system So I don't see them as pirates as much as I see them as something that will grow if you provide the enabling environment, environment for that. And we can debate for a very long time whether that enabling environment was correct or not. But the shadow banking system resulted in significant welfare gains. In the United States, you increased significantly the level of home ownership around the world you facilitated the flow of capital and the big debate as people look at history is going to be was it worth it right but it's it's, it's an interesting issue and, and it's not as as clear as pirate ships um, invading if you like um, wealth because the pirate ships were there was welfare being created in the process my own explanation, and I talk about it in the book, is the combination of the insight of the literature on innovations and the literature on behavioral finance and behavioral economics. Virtually every single innovation in history has a very costly first round. Innovation enable things that could not previously take place Human nature almost inevitably results in an overconsumption and overproduction of the innovation. We don't ask the question is the infrastructure strong enough to support all these new activities? We just do them as, as, as a society. And that is why, if you go back to the steam engine, if you go back to, to fiber optics, if you go back to all these major innovations, you'll find that the first round ended in tears. And then the innovation comes back in a much more nuanced and sustainable fashion. And I think that part of the story here is the secular overlay of of these fundamental changes that occurred at the same time as other things were happening. On your first question, I don't have a number for you. What I do know is that not only is this line going to come down, but the trend line is going to come down. Right? So it's going to come down much more. It's going to go through the trend line because the trend line itself is heading south. And part of the big challenge for regulators is how to ensure more counter-cyclicality in the financial system. How to ensure that the financial system builds up capital during the good times and doesn't end up where it is now, which is accentuating the deleveraging process.
2: Right?
1: but absent any circuit breakers this line goes heads down pretty quickly and and that's another reason why we are just at the beginning of the global economic dislocation even though we may be 3 quarters of the way through the financial dislocation
2: thank you for the lecture I'm wondering if it is valid to have international institutions to regulate, I mean, the international institutions to regulate and administrate the financial system, say, give institutions like IMF more power. Please forgive me if my question is kind of ridiculous, because I do not know too much about it, although I'm already in the financial crisis. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, your your, your question is not ridiculous because there's a massive meeting that's going to take place in a few days' time in Washington, D.C. that's going to address that issue. Um, And already you have views um, that have been expressed all over the world. The argument for making the IMF all powerful is because someone has to own, be responsible, and be accountable for the global public good of global financial stability that global financial stability cannot, in today's world, be delivered by a single nation. It's a shared responsibility, and unless you you have clear accountability and responsibility for it, then it's not going to be delivered. So that's the argument to let's run to the IMF. But the IMF has its issues. It has a massive legitimacy problem. If you look at its representation, if you look at the governance system, it's a reflection of the world of 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and not the world of today. How do you explain the fact that Belgium, with all my um, respect to Benelux, but how do you explain the fact that Belgium has nearly the same voting power as China? Okay. So for the IMF to be able to be the guardian and be accountable, it has to go through a governance and representation revolution, which means that European countries have to give up entitlement. And unless you get that, it's not going to be a meaningful change. And then finally, the expertise within the IMF, and they're very aware of that. They've been working on it for years, has to change. The the IMF is a macro shop. The IMF gave me my first job, which was a wonderful job coming out of um, a doctorate in economics because it gathers all the macroeconomists. But you know the macroeconomists don't know very much about finance. And there's now a recognition that the IMF must not only have the best expertise in macroeconomics, but it has to have the best expertise in finance as well in order to understand these connections and these feedback loops. So there is an argument for what you say, which is to make the IMF the guardian of global financial stability, but for that to happen, the IMF has a, its own homework that it has to do before it can be effective at it.
2: Out, Hold on, because I can hardly hear you. I'm sorry. You pointed out the Dangers of um, policy mistakes, um, emanating, say, from the United States or from China, uh, is one of the significant uh, problems uh, ahead. Um, now, without trying to enter any notions of game or late game, uh, I just want to ask is it not possible that those who perhaps have not got sufficient expertise? in the view of the one side might actually have some uh, expertise uh, which is completely absent from the other side. uh, For instance, if you are vaguely uh, reading yourself uh, into the direction of uh, binary economics, you would of course uh, uh, perceive that uh, there are blindnesses on the one and on the other side. And take uh, an example. If, for instance, expertise emanating, say, from one of the loan experts in the West, uh, um, not necessarily United States, but say McKinsey, when they are feeling that they are substantially uh, carrying responsi- uh, re- responsibility for developing uh, the Chinese financial uh, uh, sector, do you think uh, they could make a gigantic uh, policy suggestion uh, a mistake when they suggest to the Chinese authorities to reform their agricultural sector, uh, their agricultural banking sector, which uh, employs an enormous amount of people for a start, has obviously a huge amount of local knowledge into not just the micro level but uh, in, in the whole landscape Land, landscape against city grasp. Uh, which is, I'm quite sure, not uh, part of the major expertise of, say, McKinsey in this case. Uh, Now, how would you place your bet that uh, these policy suggestions are not coming to a fruit, say, from McKinsey? Uh, To what degree do you think uh, China would develop sufficient uh, response uh, power in defining language which could counter arguments uh, emanating from these Expert, uh, experts, and to uh, how do you place your bet with robots, uh, about defending the uh, Chinese agricultural banking sector? So. L- <laughs> L- <laughs>
1: let, me, let me link your question um, to the previous question. Your point about expertise and sharing of expertise is a critical one. Okay so before I go to China, let's go to the United States. The United States is facing questions that it hasn't had to answer for a very long time. It has to ask, what is the right way to deal with asset impairment in your banking system? It has to ask, what's the right way of dealing with the financial crisis? How do you capitalize? It has to ask, how is it that we are gonna quadruple quadruple our issuance of government debt in the next twelve months. How do we do that without undermining the whole yield curve? These are questions that the United States has not had to face. And yet these are questions that other countries have had to face. So there is a possibility of getting expertise from other countries. It is very costly to get expertise from one country. What you really need is a clearinghouse of expertise that is legitimate, that is representative, and that is known, and I use that phrase over and over in the book, as a knowledgeable, trusted advisor. The world needs that, and the world lacks that right now because the multilateral institutions are too weak to provide that. The result of this is that you don't get the cross flow of expertise either way because the world then tries to substitute this with inefficient mechanisms the G7 is a very inefficient mechanism and then you go to bilateral exchanges that are even more inefficient so so your point about the chinese agricultural sector which i don't know enough about okay is a more general point which we see in the united states okay which is that the mechanisms for exchanges of expertise of ideas okay have also failed us. There's, there's a chapter in a book that's, that says what tradi- the failure of our traditional resources. Right? And that is yet another example of that failure.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Be- behind
1: you. <laughs> okay. I, think, I think the system has understood the urgency of my message.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very as well as
3: being a, an expert in financial systems and macroeconomics, um, you are the CIO of uh, Pinko. Can I ask what is your favorite trade right now?
1: Um, I think. Most of us can, can have a go at the following mental exercise, which is dividing up investment opportunities into three categories. The first category are highly dislocated relationships, that you have a high degree of confidence that they're going to come back. And why do you have a high degree of confidence that they're going to come back? Because you can actually identify the pool of buyers which in this world, ironically, are public sector buyers that are going to help the normalization process. It's what we call at PIMCO Category A assets. Category B assets are highly dislocated financial relationships that should come back, but they will not come back until the deleveraging is over. So as an investor, you shouldn't even think about this unless you can hold through the volatility and they have the stomach for the volatility because you don't want to be a distressed seller. And category 3 assets are those that are, that, that are dislocated and are not coming back because the world has changed. Okay? Lehman equity is not coming back.
0: <laughs>
1: Freddie and Fannie equity is not coming back. GM equity is not coming back. Right? There's lots of those. If you put that together, and maybe I do use analogies too much, but at, at PIMCO, you know, simplicity is the way we sort of stay focused on the, on the big things. Is think of an umbrella. It is a massive storm. You're under the umbrella. But it's not enough to be under the umbrella. You want to be at the handle of the umbrella. Because mm-hmm. the storm is so bad that you're gonna get splashed. So you want to be at the handle of the umbrella. And even then, there's no guarantee that you're going to be totally dry. So what are the category A assets? They include things like agencies that have become governments but are not trading at government levels. They include agency backed mortgage securities. They include inflation linked bonds that have been heavily dislocated by, by, by deleveraging. If you United States invested, they include municipal bonds. They include the the senior debt of the banks that now have explicit government support. So there's a whole list of, of assets that are, that are dislocated and they're dislocated because of the deleveraging process and one can have a good argument for why they're going to come back. And then if you're really brave, you go to Category B assets, Okay that include the debt of, developing of certain developing countries, the Brazils, the Russias of the world, that include something known as the negative basis trade, where you buy the cash bond and you protect using a CDS. That, that alone gives you 400 to 500 basis points for a virtually risk-free um, long-term trade. But it's, of course, a lot of hedge funds that are having to deliver have it on, so it's going to be really bumpy. And the key thing is you avoid this tendency that you hear um, in some of the financial media, which is buy risk assets, buy global equity markets, because global equity markets are cheap. They're not really cheap, because if you believe as we do, that the next leg is a major economic dislocation, right then one will have better opportunity to buy them later on.
2: What do you think are the chances of a major sovereign default happening in the next couple of years? And how much money would the IMF need in its war chest to be able to deal with a situation like that?
1: Can, 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 let me, what do you define as major? I is major an Iceland or is major...
0: <laughs>
1: Not Belgium. Huh? Not Belgium. Not Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than the Seychelles. Sorry? Bigger than the Seychelles. Bigger than the Seychelles. Um, bigger than the... I think that leaves about 180 countries. Um, I think that, that there are, as I mentioned earlier, certain countries that have no self-insurance left. Okay, um, And that are, have approached the IMF. And that the market is pricing as if the risk of a default is, 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 is high. Okay. Countries include, These countries include, and I'm telling you what the market is telling you, rather than what Mohammed is telling you, what the market is telling you, they include Pakistan, they include Iceland, they include um, the Ukraine, they include a number of Eastern and Central European economies. If the crisis is limited to that, the IMF has enough money. The IMF has about $200 billion in readily usable resources. It can raise another $50 billion pretty quickly through the General Agreement to Borrow, the GAB. It can also launch, and already the Japanese have announced, their willingness to lend $200 billion in the context of a multilateral effort. And it has the, um, its nuclear weapon, which is an SDR allocation. So if the crisis is limited to the smaller countries, the IMF can play an effective role. If it migrates up to the large countries, then just compare the IMF resources with what's been announced by China or what's been announced by, by the United States. There's absolutely no comparison at all. Right? So, the, so the fund is well capitalized for the smaller economies, but it is inadequately capitalized for the system as a whole. It is a, a possibility, not a probability, okay um, I think that if you're looking at the balance of risk, absent a policy mistake, right it is more likely that at this stage the policy regime will overreact rather than underreact. I really do think we are in a whatever it takes mindset right now. Um, because if you, if you shock the system, which is the, the earlier question about a stationary state, if you put the capitalist system in a prolonged low-level equilibrium, things start falling apart quite quickly. Okay. So the authorities will, in my view, do their utmost, and there are many tools. Right At some point you go from being conventional to being unconventional. The interesting question, and, and Willem and I were talking about it, is if all the industrial countries do that, and therefore the creditworthiness of everybody declines at the same time, what does that mean for the system? Okay? And it's not clear to me what it means for the system. There's one view that says it doesn't matter. You can abuse the risk-free assets as much as you want as long as you abuse them all. And there's another view that says, no, risk-free is risk-free, right? and it will fundamentally harm to capitalism. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think that's a great Ph.D. thesis for somebody.
0: Are okay. you going to take few more how, questions?
1: How about two more? OK.
0: A couple more questions. There and
2: Given the enormous amount of money that's having to be raised by the Western governments to bail out their mm-hmm. banks, is that not going to put a lot of pressure on the bond market and, and ironically increase yields? And which end of the yield curve is it likely to affect
1: Right. So, so the numbers are are, are horrific. Okay. Based on what we know today, PIMCO's estimate is that over the next 12 months there will be $2 trillion of issuance on the United States. About a trillion for the above-the-line activities, which is the difference between revenues and expenditures. And about a trillion for f- funding activities, acquiring assets. So it's not a two trillion dollar deficit is a two trillion dollar funding requirement because the government is going to be purchasing assets. As far as we know, the highest 12-month issuance number in history is $550 billion. So you're talking about a significant shift up in funding requirements. So issuance is a major theme. Okay? So in terms of how to visualize it and if you were to come to our to the, to the room where we have our investment committee meetings you will find a series of circles on on, on, on the board okay? one and then slightly bigger concentric circles that grow and grow and grow and grow and they are if you like the quality spectrum of the global financial system At the middle is the risk free asset next are agencies next are mortgage backed securities Next up banks, then you get to corporates, then you get to hybrids, then you get to equities, then you get to illiquid equities. Okay, And this, the system is coming from, from a place where the only place you would have made money over the last 12 months is the center of the circle. Two things are now happening. The center is starting to embrace circles around it. So there's change in the relative valuation, and the center is going to start to issue very seriously. So there's going to be, for the inside the circle, which is much expanded now, a convergence from both ends. In the case of mortgage-backed securities, the risk premium comes down, and the risk-free asset goes up. If you're further out, you're really problematic, because if you're you're not embraced, then you will lose capital to people who say, I'd rather be in the club than outside the club. What does it mean for, mean for the yield curve? It means that if you buy the baseline scenario, there was in, in, in response to an earlier question, we're probably looking at a ten-year rate that today was in the three seventy-five range, three and three-quarter range, north of four and a half. But you're looking at the short end of the curve being anchored by very low policy rates for an extended amount of time, which means that you're looking at the yield curve steepening quite a bit. Now, the market is not stupid. The market knows about this issuance, and yet it is trading the 10-year at three and three quarters. Why? Because the market also knows about the possibility of the low-level equilibrium, and that takes all sorts of different names, depression, etc. In that state of the world, the 10-year comes down to below two and a half. So the market is frozen right now by these two... Possibilities. And what you know is the, the present rate is incorrect because the present rate is the average of two outcomes that are diametrically opposite, but the market doesn't have enough information to go with confidence to one or the other. So in terms of, of where we end up, the only thing you can say for sure is that the front end of the curve is safe, and then the other end depends on your baseline scenario and, and depends on how you can protect yourself because k- this is a very binary outcome right now and the market right now is frozen in the middle of that
0: okay. last yeah, the
1: and they always tell you never take the last question right
3: <laughs> I hope I can live up to that um, in light of um, the government embracing banks um, as Model. Um, I wondered if you could be a little bit more precise on uh, on the fact that Pimco is to some extent outside that embrace. How you yourselves are retooling uh, uh, together?
1: So, sure, I mean, are we tooling? Uh, you know, the the views that you've heard me say are reflected first and foremost in our investment strategies. Second, in what products we come up with. Thirdly, in where we redirect our resources, our business resources. And fourthly, in how we inform our clients. And every area is being retooled. So it's right across the board. Where you see it most clearly is in the fact that we are coming out with products for both the journey and the destination. And perhaps where you see it most clearly is in the fact that over the last year and a bit, my colleagues have been working hard on what seems like an oxymoron, which is a forward-looking index. Okay? Indices are by definition backward-looking. But if you believe that the new destination looks very different, then a backward-looking index is not going to serve you very much. So it is an across-the-board retooling, but you know, that's what PIMCO does. My first seven years there, I watched three different retoolings, okay, which is a reflection of how dynamic financial markets are. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: And a wonderful QA session. The number of people that can both be extremely uh, in a successful investment the managers and CEOs of uh, major companies and uh, uh, authors and scholars capable um, of giving uh, presentations that we felt might and be counted on the fingers of no hands, really. Mm-hmm. And here's the one finger. Uh, by himself in this field. Some people have all the luck. Thank you. (laughs)